Today is traditionally Advent Sunday. It's the beginning of Advent, that period running up to uh, the celebration of the birth of the Messiah, of what we call the Incarnation. And it is the meaning of the Advent of Advent is something I put more details on the Watford word, which I forgot to bring. Uh, so, <laughs> sitting in my filing cabinet, there's about 30 copies, but uh, if you want one, I'll send one to you. Uh, so, but there's a bit more detail about how Advent came to be and what it's really about, because it's not about getting ready for Christmas in the sense of the commercial you know, side of things. It's about preparing ourselves to welcome the coming of Christ into our lives, to celebrate that. Getting ready to celebrate what many people think is the most significant event that's ever happened in the history of humankind. You might argue whether the single most significant event after creation was the incarnation or the resurrection. I don't think it's worth arguing about. They're both critical. But the resurrection wasn't going to happen if the incarnation didn't happen. And so it's important for us who are Christian faith to not let Christmas pass us by, not let the celebration of the incarnation pass us by as an incidental event mixed up in some kind of commercial razzmatazz. There's something deeper there for us to reflect on and celebrate. So the idea of having four Sundays leading up to Christmas is to help us prepare our own hearts to welcome Christ once again on the celebration of uh, his coming. And we can't we can't live without hope and I think the resurrection of the incarnation if it means anything means that we can have hope in our lives and we jolly well need a lot of help to have hope right now with what's going on in our world and perhaps in our personal lives before going into the details of what the coming of Jesus means though I want to ask Mulligan and Elsie to do a reading for us they're both going to do parts right excellent now they're going to read some excerpts from Revelation and you may ask yourself what are the sections in Revelation got to do with the Incarnation? Well, the reason I'm asking, us, asking them to read these is two reasons. One is that next week, my good friend Douglas Jacobi will be here, as I mentioned last week, and he will be talking about the second coming of Christ and tying it to the first coming of Christ. And so that's next week. If you have questions about the second coming, ask Doug, because he knows everything. If you know <laughs> Massive brain. But that'll tie together the two, and these scriptures... Um, give us a vision of what it's about when Jesus comes back. So I think putting the two together, the first coming, if you like, and the second coming, they really, it really matters that we have that sense of connection. So as they read, can I ask you to let it wash over you a little bit and, and, and ask yourself, what, what is the impression that God is giving us of what it will be like when he returns? What is he like, Christ, and what will it be like for us who believe when he returns. All right, so let's think about that. Okay, is it you first? All right, you can move those up and down as you see fit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice, 
from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no light there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the he healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and, the, uh, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Thank you very much. Marathon reading session. Observer, some refreshment. Cup of tea or something. So that's the vision of where it's going, right? Sometimes we can forget with all the um, cuteness of Christmas and all that kind of thing, where it's going. And we think, oh yes, yes, it's going to the cross. Well, no, it's going beyond that, isn't it? Oh no, it's going to the resurrection. Yes, but it's going beyond that. It's going to this vision. And it's important to think about that now and again. Where is this all uh, going? Going there. So what we're going to talk about briefly, and then we have some discussion as well, is this. There's a few things around why Jesus came. First, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says the word, he's talking there about Jesus, became flesh, he was in flesh. So God's, God, as in God the word, was in flesh, took on flesh, our flesh, yours and mine, made his dwelling among us. Uh, the word there can be translated tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us, he tented among us. So we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son has been made visible. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. A wonderful balance and blend of all that is godly, grace and truth. So, my question to you then is, if this is what God did, enfleshed, 
dwelt among us, bringing us grace and truth, revealing the glory of the only Son. Why? What is the point of the incarnation? Let's have some ideas here. Okay? What do you think? What comes to the top of your mind when I ask this question? What is the point of the incarnation? I mean, there are many, but these, you know, this has a few. So, what do you think? What is the point of the enfleshment of the Godhead amongst us? Love and relationship. Love and relationships coming down to our level in that sense. Yes. Okay. Other thoughts. I think it's the beginning to prove that you can be human and, and, and live or lead a righteous life. Giving us an example, an setting example. an example yes, of what it means, of what it means to live a righteous, a truly righteous life, truly. a fully righteous life. I suppose. Mm. Yes. Good. Thank you. Uh, other ideas. What's the point? Done. Okay, and then that's a whole sermon that Stefan's going to preach in two weeks' time as to how that works. <laughs> but no, you're right, right? So that redemption had to be through human form. Okay, yeah. Having the visual. So, in other words, why, why did God birth a baby rather than birthing a book? Why didn't he just publish as a book? Right? But he didn't. He published a baby. No, that doesn't work. Okay. But you know what I mean. Okay. All right, other ideas. Yes, Liesl. I think to show that life is doable. Life is doable. The doability of life, you could say, perhaps with God, in God's way, that shows us what it will be like in our next life. I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? That's a really good point. Okay, yeah. What's the point of the resurrection? Any other things? Akin? I think it's probably measured. It's make God real to us. Mm -hmm. Make God real. Make God real. In, a, in our realm of the senses. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And leading on from that, no one can then say he doesn't know what it feels like to be human. Okay. You can't throw that one in his face any longer. All right. You can't complain to God that he doesn't understand what it's like. Mm -hmm. What it feels like to live a human life here with all of what that means. Okay. All right. Uh, Simon, you got one? <clears throat> yeah, all of the above. All of the above. And? Relatability. <laughs> Coming to undo what we did in Eden, in a sense, what Adam did. Yeah, very good. All right, let's move on. I've got a few things to share, and then I've got another question for you in a second. Okay, so I would suggest one thing, one point of the, of the incarnation is to show the church how to live. You may not have thought about it like this, but if you think about it, 
Jesus came to show the church, his community, not church building, the community how to live. This quote from John Mark Hicks from Searching the Pattern. The pattern for the church, like what should the church be like? The pattern for the church is not the narrative description in Acts. So what happens in the book of Acts tells us a lot about the early church, but it doesn't actually tell us what the church is meant to be, not really in detail. The pattern for the church is not the narrative descriptions in Acts, but the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. In other words, Jesus shows us what community is like. He does that, doesn't he, with his 12 disciples. He shows us how to love one another. He shows us how to forgive one another. He shows us what community is. Church is community. Community in Christ, but it's community. It's not individual. It's not uh, a building. It's not an institution. It's not a structure. Church is community. Jesus shows us by the way he lived. He showed us how to bring people into that community by the way he treated those outside of it. And he showed us how to discipline the community and how to grow the community and how to mature the community, how to teach in the community, how to have deeper relationships in that community. He shows us as a church how we are designed ultimately to be God's representation of his heart to the world. He also shows us all about leadership in, of that community, but we'll talk more about that another time. A second area where I believe that uh, a purpose or a point of the incarnation is not only that, but also to affirm the goodness of creation. To affirm the goodness of what God has made. There is a tendency, and this has been in Christendom for, much, for, very, for a very long time, going back to perhaps even the 4th century or earlier, the idea that the material is bad, but the spiritual is good. And what God's done is he's allowed us to sort of mess around down here in the material for a while, but after a bit he's going to get fed up and say, that's enough of that, I'm going to wipe it all away, burn it all off, destroy everything, and save the souls out of all this, and create some kind of feathery, uh, ethereal, cloud-based existence in the heavenlies, where we're sort of uh, ethereal and not really material, and because the material is evil and bad. That is not something the Bible teaches. It's not in the Old Testament, it's not in the New uh, as uh, these authors say in the book Embracing Creation, the incarnation affirmed the goodness of creation since God cannot participate in moral inferiority, much less something evil. How could God take on flesh if flesh is evil? How could he take on flesh if flesh is, is, is inevitably morally compromised? It is not. The world is beautiful. The world is good. The world has been corrupted. The world is messed up. But God is going to come back with Jesus. What God is going to come back, Jesus is going to come back to purify what we have and to make it as it always was meant to be. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 are largely talking about. Doug will talk more about that next week. But part of the purpose of the incarnation is to say the material in itself is good. God made it. Somebody said, God don't make junk. God don't make junk. Sin has messed it up, but it can be purified. It can be, the, the life, human life can be lived in a way that is pleasing to God. And the third thing, I think the, uh, another point of the incarnation to add to all the many that we've already shared, is that it reveals that God wants to hear from us. This is connected to the points about, other people have said about this love and connection and community. Dallas Willard says in his book, Hearing God, of course he, as in God, would speak to us ordinary people. The incarnation of Jesus proves that. If God went to all the trouble of incarnating, becoming flesh, to talk to us, Jesus talked to people. He clearly not only wants to talk to us, he wants to hear from us. This affirms the significance of our 
privileged position of being those who have a relationship with the deity. How amazing it is that we have a relationship with God. So three things to think about there amongst many. Now, I've got another question for you. So, oh, I have a scripture. Okay, this question first. What advantages do we have since Jesus is still incarnate? Maybe you haven't thought about this. But he's still human. Right? He rose from the dead in a reincarnated body. But he ate food. He hung out with his disciples. He cooked breakfast for his friends. He went back to the heavenlies, but in his physical form. So I don't know exactly how this works in the heavenlies, of course. Again, ask Douglas Jacobi next week. <laughs> but he's still human in some sense. He didn't give off, he didn't cast off his humanity when he rose from the dead. Remember, he is an example for us, or a model of what our lives will be like in the next life, where we will have a life, a redeemed life, a new life, but a life. So, think about the fact that, and if you're not sure about this, run with it for a minute, okay? If, you could put if at the front, if Jesus is still incarnate in some form, if he's still human in some form, what advantages does that give us? Maybe I've scrambled the brains too much to think about this kind of question. But, let's see what we come up with. The Bible says that Jesus is ever, he's always interceding for us before mm. the Father. So, I mean, I don't thought that if Jesus is still incarnate, he really made me think that. Um, but maybe the fact that he is still interceding, in a sense, he can only one sense do that because he still knows what it is like to be human. Yes, he is divine, but if he is still human, that also... Um, it means that we can also go about what that is. No one can say he doesn't know what it feels like to be human. He knows only too well what it feels like to be human, and he has gone on knowing what it feels like to be human. So, yeah. although it's happening in Palestine 2,000 years ago, fine, but he still knows what's happening exactly now in 2022. With all the madness, he knows what it feels like to be human on this earth, never mind 2,000 years ago. Okay, that's really profound, isn't it? Okay, any other thoughts? Steph? This is a, I, I once pronounced this song by you and, and got into quite a bit of controversy and very deep study which led to no firm conclusion. <laughs> I believe that your statement, I said, for me, that I find it kind of all inspiring that the sacrifice that Jesus made to give up heaven and, and his spiritual life in heaven to become human was an eternal sacrifice and not a one-stop sacrifice. Okay, yep. And not only for the That's, I never thought about that. That's a great point. A perpetual sacrifice. It ties in together with the idea that, you know, why does the resurrected body of Jesus still have the wounds? It's because, part, part, partly at least, partly at least, is it's a reminder to him, perhaps, of what he did and what our needs are. And it's a reminder to us that he still knows and he therefore 
still cares. Mm. Couple more thoughts, Akin? Strange one though about what's up. I think I'm assuming I know the meaning of the word incarnate. <laughs> right? But I thought it might be helpful just yes, you can help to find so well in the same day, just just near the front I think I think it means being in the flesh from from being dating, but I'll find that helpful anyway. Yeah, it's a combination of sharing our humanity and sharing our flesh. Uh, sharing our flesh and all that means and our humanity. So I'm not suggesting that he's incarnate in exactly the same form he was incarnate when he was walking on the earth. What I'm suggesting by using that word, and there are different words one could use, perhaps, but what I'm suggesting is that his humanity is no less an experience for him in some ways than it was on this earth. It may be different, but he still has that human... Um, uh, that human difficult to use the right words, but he still has his humanity in some sense. That's the main point I'm trying to make. Dan? It makes me think of a scripture where well, a few things come to mind, where there's a be a new heaven and a new earth. So, and also, that we'll have a body like his glorious body, which I take it as the body he has now. So it makes me think, so when there's a new heaven and a new earth, do we become like he is now? Or do we transform into something different with him when he comes back? So, not to go into the steps and say, what is it? Is it an eternal sacrifice? Or actually, will we all change after a day? Him and us. Well, we know we will, for sure. And we're told that we will become like him, which we'll go to that scripture in just a minute. And that, that, like him, seems to indicate his post-resurrection state, or his post-resurrection experience, his post-resurrection body. Because his post-resurrection body is not the same as his pre-resurrection body, exactly. Right? Walks through walls, um, but still eats breakfast. So, Well, I'll tell you what, I'll start next week. Because... Uh, <laughs> Soul is an interesting thing. It's a bit more of a Plato idea than it is a Christian idea, but we'll have to come back to that another time. Um, I'm going to move on for now, okay? But the point I'm sharing is not so much that we come up with the answers, but I pray to help us to think of it. Maybe this Christmas will be a bit of a different experience for us than previous Christmases, because we're thinking more deeply about what it means that Jesus was in flesh. Right? He was born. We don't have a high priest, Jesus, unable to empathise, not only when he was here, but now he still can empathise with our weaknesses. He's been tempted, did not sin. So we approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We come to him with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have grace. He's glorified, but he's able to still relate and understand. But one scripture before that, come back. Here we are. He's our mediator. There is one God and one mediator. Not there was a mediator, there is a mediator. That's the man, Christ Jesus. Interesting, he uses the word man. The man, Christ Jesus. Right? So he's able to mediate because he understands and helps us in that way. And hope, Colossians 3, to your point, when Christ, who is your life, appears for the second time, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's hope for a new life. Wonderful thing. 
Next week, you can ask Doug more about that next uh, new life. Now, I'm going to read something that I read uh, recently, and I rather liked, and I think you'll like this. It's an article, and I don't normally read articles of this length in a lesson, because sometimes when you're just listening, you kind of tune out a bit. So uh, I'll do our best to uh, me not to be boring when I read it, and, and us to um, not tune out. But this comes from uh, an article uh, called uh, The Greatest Hope of All by somebody called Glenn Pacquiao. And I like it. And I'll read bits of it. So think about the incarnation as I read this, what we've been talking about today. Imagine a boy being bullied in a playground, or a girl if you like. Bullied in the playground. Kids surround him, taunt him, push him onto the ground. He's fighting back the tears, but that's about all he can fight. There's no way to stop the terror and the torment. Then, almost out of nowhere, a car pulls up. It's the kid's father. Get in the car, son, the dad yells. Rolling out of the other kid's grasp, the boy scrambles to his feet and stumbles to the car, and they speed off. As the boy looks briefly out of the window, he is sure that the bullies are laughing. The boy is safe, but there's no way to count that as a win. An evacuation is not a victory. The end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible itself, shows us the picture not of our evacuation or escape, but of God's arrival. Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross. In John's Gospel, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Here in John's Revelation, the passages that were read earlier by Elsie and Mulligan, those passages, uh, the one who is seated on the throne says, it is done. The first statement on the cross was an announcement of completion. The second, in Revelation, is a proclamation of things coming to pass. The victory of Jesus on the cross was made manifest in his resurrection, but it will arrive in fullness at his return. We know that the season of Advent is a time of waiting between two arrivals. But the truth is, it is also waiting between two victories. Jesus, the Mighty One, has overcome, and Jesus, the Mighty One, is coming again. And when he comes, he comes to dwell. Remember John 1, he dwelt among us? That was for a while, but he's coming back to dwell permanently. To dwell. The vision at the end of Revelation, provide, Revelation provides us of God making heaven and earth new, united with new heaven and new earth as one, filling it with his presence and light. This is a victory that comes with an occupation. Only in this case, the occupation is good news, the best news the world could receive. The Creator has redeemed his creation and come to fill it with his glory. The story that began in Genesis has been perfected and completed. Back to the playground. Creatively imagine a totally different scenario. Instead of the dad yelling for his kid to get in so they can drive away, the dad parks the car, gets out, and walks slowly over. The authority of his very presence drives away the bullies. He embraces his son. He calls out to other kids who are hiding, who are hurting, to come out into the light. He decides to settle in 
and remake the playground entirely. Now, with better equipment and brighter delights, food and drinks arrive. Then comes the music and ice cream. <laughs> Laughter abounds. Somehow, the place of pain has become the place of joy. Isn't this what the Incarnation is about? The first coming, preparing for the second, when all will be made new, made right, made as it was made to be made.